Hello, lovelies, and welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a PYP Teacher. I'm Lou Gerlach with Think Chat, and welcome to Confession 129, um, where we're going to continue our book study of culturally responsive teaching and the brain um, by Zaretta Hammond. Um, and we're going to focus on from pedagogy of poverty to ready for rigor, which covers pages 14 to 20. And as I reviewed my notes from the last episode, I discovered that I missed two key significant ideas that I want to explore before moving forward. So Hammond refers to the school to prison pipeline, which is something that's um, quite prevalent within the United States. Um, this pipeline consists of learning systems, so like schools, institutions, that withhold rigorous instruction for children of color, particularly black and uh, Latino boys. And the what ends up happening is that um, these students are um, put into learning situations of repetitive instruction. And it, to be honest, it sparks a lot of behavior issues because the children are bored. They're not being challenged. And then this increases learners um, more unlikely being removed from the learning setting. And as a result, it decreases instruction and widens the gap for developing young people who can critically and creatively think. Thus, this school to prison pipeline reduces the opportunities in their life and increases the probability that they're going to get into a life of um, unethical practices possibly, which will lead them to prison. And man, uh, a person who really explored this work, I remember at the beginning um, of my teaching career name is Jonathan Koisel. Um, I always mess this uh, title up because um, it's just coming to my brain right now, uh, called Ordinary Insurrections. That book really shook me to the core um, where he looks at areas at that time, um, it turned of the 21st, uh, 21st century, and looking at areas, particularly like in New York, that were designed where they were building extra prison capacity based on how many children, particularly boys, were enrolled in kindergarten. Instead of um, building better educational institutions, they poured the money into building prisons that were going to be ready for them because it's big business, right? Um, and that really, I remember that idea shocked me until I went into um, conditions uh, where you saw a lot of pedagogy of poverty is another um, idea that Hammond explores in her book. And she describes this pedagogy of poverty as setting up students um, to leave high school with outdated skills and shallow knowledge. I've seen this time and time again, to be honest, where children are able to regurgitate facts and, and ideas, but have difficulty applying them to new knowledge in practical ways. They just know here's the algorithm, or they just know this is a fact. They don't know how the fact looks in different contexts. And unfortunately, you often see this at the elementary or primary level in poorer schools. And 
Having worked in these conditions, I've seen the pedagogy of poverty used repeatedly by teachers who come from the similar background. And they're oftentimes perpetuating the same low level instruction to the next generation and creating the next uh, cycle of pedagogy of poverty without knowing it. And so it's about awareness. So how do we get out of this cycle of the school to prison pipeline and this pedagogy of poverty? And that loops into where we're talking today is that we engage in culturally responsive teaching. And Hammond defines it as a process of using familiar cultural information and processes to scaffold learning. So in order for that to happen, you have to have a clear understanding. You don't have to even be from the same background as your learners, but you got to have a clear understanding of their processing and, and understanding about their culture and understanding how they, um, as a culture, um, how, how do they operate? And this right here is also too, is focusing on developing those relationships, right? Looking at how do you um, cognitively scaffold the instruction and she also says to a critical social awareness. And so thinking about those three components that um, Hammond talks about, we have to build relationships. We have to be able to, that we don't know the background of every child in our classroom. So we have to heavily uh, scaffold the cognitive learning so all children have access. That sounds like Caroline Tomlinson to me and her work on differentiation, but it's aligned with also recognizing that different cultures think differently. And just because your way, you have a certain way of scaffolding um, might not fit all your learners. And that's why some are falling behind and some getting frustrated and exhibiting those behaviors. Also having critical social awareness. So that's emotional intelligence, understanding how certain things set off certain cultures because it might be disrespect, where in your own culture, it might be perfectly normalized. So what does this mean for us? Is we need to be familiar with the backgrounds of our learners and scaffold learning so they can access it. Unfortunately, many educators believe this is reducing the amount of rigor um, with instruction to meet the shortfall. So they think that, well, if I dumb down the curriculum, water it down, then that's how uh, children will access it. And actually it's quite the opposite. We're striving to scaffold the process for learners to think critically and creatively so that everyone has equitable access to their future possibilities. And Zaretta did this by establishing her Ready for Rigor framework, which we're going to explore um, for the rest of this episode. Um, I'm taking just a few tidbits and then thinking about how I apply it because that's what we do as learners, what we've just been talking about. So in regards to her uh, ready for rigor framework, she talks about awareness um, and awareness is the first part of this dynamic framework. We examine our own social and political viewpoint and how it impacts our instructional practice. That's deep friends, really deep. We look at our biases. We look at how are we normalizing certain behavior um, and how that impacts to our instructional practices. 
So we have to start by asking ourselves these questions. What is my level of privilege based on my race, my gender, my class, or language? I just remember someone once told me, you have the world at your fingertips. And I said, why? Because you hold a U.S. passport. And that really shocked me. And as I was more aware of the truth of that, I then was able to look at this next question is, how does this privilege allow me more opportunities than others? That's deep. And how is this privilege and bias shaping my teaching practice? And how are my actions allowing learners to stop, uh, you know, allowing learners to stop reaching their potential? Um, think about that. Um, whew, uh, that's deep. <laughs> And this particular portion um, of this framework became clear to me when I worked in a predominantly, um, in a, sorry, I should back up, in a culture or a subculture that was predominantly a subculture that wasn't my own. And I've worked, I've had the, you know, privilege of working in many campuses that that was the case where I was the minority. Um, and I think that's beautiful because it really helps you to learn about your own behavior. Um, and are you building a culture of responsiveness or a wall of inclusion, exclusion, not inclusion, exclusion. And I had to face some truth about my behavior and the level of privilege um, compared to my peers and my learners, um, particularly like when I was working in Dubai and looking at like, for instance, the Filipino maids, um, that, um, were, um, custodians within the school thinking about that. Um, now we're going to come to the second part of the framework, which is learning partnerships, focusing on building strong relationships where learners trust us and our process of delivering learning. So our learners, when we have a partnership with them, they know that we're doing everything we can to create opportunities for their growth. And we might develop these partnerships by asking these questions of ourselves. How am I building individual relationships with my learners? Not just as a whole class, but as individuals, where they're seeing you beyond the role of teacher and vice versa as a class clown, as the nerd or whatever labels that children receive that we internalize, how are we going beyond those? How's my schedule arranged to build in moments for rich discussions, such as morning meetings, restorative circles, etc. Because these meetings really matter in building those relationships. What safeguards am I putting in to ensure that they're never missed? So if we're putting these things into practice, that we never miss them or cut them from our instructional day because we recognize they're so important. 
And remember, relationships always come first before instruction. And at the beginning of this school year, I actually heard a um, ex-footballer, uh, but who's now an advocate and a um, show host, Emmanuel Acho. He cited a quote I'd heard before, but I thought it was so beautiful. Rules before relationships equals rebellion. Think about that. If you impose rules before you have relationships with students, that's going to incite rebellion. And this is so true for all of us, whether as a teacher, we might take umbrage if a new administrator comes into the school demanding curricular or cultural changes before they've learned about our teaching practice. And so if we don't like it, why would we do that to our learners? Something to consider. The third part of Zaretta's uh, Ready for Rigor framework is information processing. She says it's about deepening our learners' intellective capacity, um, which she defines as the increased power the brain creates to process complex information more effectively. Once again, that's called intellective capacity. And this requires us to examine our teaching practices to determine if we're using the adequate processes, strategies, tools, and products to help our learners engage with the curriculum at a deeper level. We can examine our practice by answering these questions to ourselves. How do learners process the information they're engaging with in their day? Are you getting them to regularly reflect in a journal with each other? Uh, are we doing um, visible thinking routines? What are we utilizing to help learners to process the information? How are we balancing skills and strategies that are teacher-driven, modeled, guided, and learner-driven? That we're not always staying in the place of the teacher talks to students and then the teacher models processes and then going back to the teacher, um, you know, delivering new content. And where are learners guiding their own learning pathway in this process? Um, something to consider about. And now we're going to go to the last one of the ready for rigor is community building. It focuses on leveraging the power of the group to create a safe and caring environment that connects with the learner's background. It's difficult for them to connect to something they don't understand, which may be our view of what a community looks and feels like based on our personal experiences. So let's ask ourselves these questions. How are learners co-creating the space designed to reflect their optimum learning conditions? When do learners engage in meaningful discussions in pairs, small groups, whole group, within their own language to solve complex problems that reflect also local and global contexts. Huge amount of emphasis is on multilingualism and translanguaging. And I've shared this online, but one of my favorite quotes recently is that translanguaging is allowing students to access their full arsenal of language development to be able to process and make meaning of what they're learning. Beautiful. And to me, that is the whole purpose of what it means to be community building is allowing children to tap in to all the bits 
of who they are to express how is this connected to learning. And it really helps learners to broaden and deepen their perspective. Um, because they, oftentimes there are words that just do not reflect how this looks and feels in English, but it might be in Spanish, it might be in Portuguese, it might be in French, right? It might be in Arabic, and whatever it might be, and that the children can describe those words, that to me is more powerful than limiting it to just English. Can you believe we only made it to chapter two? <laughs> There's so many nuggets of wisdom that I can't contain myself, I'll be honest. I just love this book. And the thing that has stayed with me the most in preparing our learners for rigor is, is getting out of the loop of watering down instruction for more economically disadvantaged youth or children who are falling behind or children who need extra time or children who are neurodivergent or children who are acquiring a different language. This applies to them all because at the end of the day, we want all children to feel that they're included into the learning process. And I just want to say that I'm so grateful that this book openly addresses so many concerns that rest upon my heart. So, and she and Miss Hammond does this so beautifully. And I just want to remind you that her ready for rigor uh, framework is about awareness, learning partnerships, information processing, and community building. We're now entering um, other chapters um, as we go through to learn about neuroscience first time I read it kind of went over my head. So this is, I'm so excited actually to like really take time to break it down so that I understand it so I can relay it to you and to help me to look at teaching from a different lens. And I hope you appreciate this uh, book as well and get it into your hands as soon as possible so that you can uh, really apply it and help your learners to continue to grow. Have a wonderful day.